Well, in last week's sermon, Andy brought up C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he talked about the scene where the great lion, Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the story, is killed by the white witch and her forces on the stone table. At that moment, the story all seemed lost, and, and two of the children, Lucy and Susan, wept over Aslan's body throughout the night. But on the, as the next day dawned, Aslan rose from the dead to the utter joy of these little girls. Because of his willing death in place of a traitor, he had brought the deeper magic of healing and forgiveness and peace and joy to the world of Narnia. And while there was still a battle to be fought, Aslan's resurrection made his victory certain. After rising from the dead, Aslan tells Lucy and Susan to jump on his back and he takes them on a wild ride through Narnia, spreading the deeper magic everywhere they went. Now I know it's a children's story, but just for a moment, imagine what that ride must have been like for those two girls. The wind in their hair, riding on the back of the all-powerful and true king of Narnia who had just conquered death itself. I imagine that things that felt important before no longer felt important. I imagine that fears and anxieties that riddled their hearts before were nowhere to be found. I mean, they're with the risen king, sharing in his life and victory. What could they possibly fear? Who else's approval could they possibly need? How could they desire to be anywhere or with anyone else? I imagine these girls felt only joy and freedom and true pleasure. And I know that kind of experience may seem totally foreign to us. It's just totally fictional. That's, that's the stuff of fairy tales. But friends, in a very real sense, that's what our experience with Jesus is supposed to be like. Last week's passage told us that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And near the end of verse 21, it went on to say that we have been saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Here's a question. I, I, I mean, really ponder this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that's who Jesus is? Do you believe that that's what he did? Do you believe that that's where he is right now? Because if you do, it should do something to us. And it should do something in us. It should impact our lives. I think if we're honest, a lot of us claim to believe in and follow a risen savior who's ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, the place of ultimate power and authority in all the universe. But then we live like we follow simply a moral Jewish rabbi, rabbi forgive me, rabbi. <laughs> I'm always thinking about it, Emily. Um, we claim to believe in a risen Savior, to follow this Savior who's ascended on high but then we live like we simply follow a moral Jewish rabbi whose bones are in some random tomb somewhere in Jerusalem. 
Listen, so often there's a disconnect between what we claim to believe and how we actually live. We claim to believe in the resurrected Jesus, but we live like we follow a dead Messiah. We claim to follow an all-powerful Christ, but we so often live powerless lives marked by fear and anxiety and constantly reverting back to our old ways of living. Is that the life that Jesus came to offer us? I think our text this morning answers with a resounding no. May it never be. Listen, these first century Christians that Peter was writing this letter to were just like us. They had their own sins and struggles, and they were trying to be faithful to Jesus, surrounded by constant temptations, surrounded by constant cultural pressures to turn back to their old way of living, and surrounded by a culture that both mocked their faith and also saw them as dangerous to the society that Rome was trying to build. Does that sound familiar at all? And when you're facing all of the temptations and trials of a sin-filled world, sometimes you find yourself asking, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? I believe that Peter in his letter is showing us that not only is Jesus worth it, but he's the only place that we can find what we're truly looking for in life. What are we truly looking for? We can call it all kinds of things, but what we're truly looking for is redemption, freedom, joy, purpose, and ultimately real life. That real life can only be found in and sustained by the victory of Jesus. The victory of Jesus, meaning his life, death, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf. And this morning, I want us to see that the victory of Jesus empowers us to die to sin, gifts us with new desires, and comforts us with a certain destiny. Let's begin by seeing that the victory of Christ empowers us to die to sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. And if you're anything like me, you're reading those verses and and saying, what does it mean that the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin? Does that mean I just need to go out and look for some random opportunity to suffer for Christ? If I can just get a little suffering, then I'll be done with sin. Is that what Peter's saying? No, that's not what our text is saying this morning. It's clear that we believe that sinless perfection in a practical sense is not possible this side of heaven. However, what I think Peter is getting at in this verse is that Jesus is both the pattern, or excuse me, is that Jesus is both the power and the pattern for living as Christians in a sin-filled world. I start with power before pattern because if you immediately read, arm yourself with the same understanding and say, I gotta go and do this, then you'll be utterly disappointed. We need the power of Jesus before we can ever hope to live in the pattern of Jesus. And the power comes from the fact that he suffered in the flesh. Verse 1 begins with, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Anytime we see the word therefore, we need to be, we we can interpret that passage, or at least it's a good tool to ask, what came before this? This passage needs to be interpreted in light of what came 
before. So what came before verse one? The immediate context is last week's passage of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. But specifically, Peter is, is calling back to his language in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Let me read that one more time. I know we read it last week, but let me just read it. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Can we just stop and marvel at that for a second? I know we talked about it last week. But accessing the power of Christ begins with marveling at the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't come from mere mental assent or intellectual knowledge. We need to revel in this. Our God came from heaven to bring us to himself. But he didn't just suffer. He was also raised from the dead, as verse 18 tells us. And according to verse 22, he's ascended on high to the right hand of God, the ultimate place of power and authority. And the craziest thing, Scripture tells us the craziest thing, that if, that if we have faith in Jesus, that we are united to him in such a way that we actually share in his death and resurrection. We actually share in both his suffering and his victory. And this is where the power to say no to our sinful desires and yes to God's will comes from. Romans 8, or excuse me, Romans 6, 8 through 12, paints this picture vividly for us. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ has been raised from the dead and he will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. That's 1 Peter 3, 18. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Both Peter and Paul say that through the once for all time sacrifice of Christ and our union with him, that sin no longer rules over us. This is the objective reality of every believer in Christ. But if we're honest, it's not often or not always our subjective reality. The power of living, for living faithfully for Jesus in a sin-filled world comes from really believing that the gospel is true and, and appropriating those truths in our lives. It's, it's, it's this kind of thought, right? Because Christ died for sins once for all, I can truly die to sin. Those desires that once ruled me no longer rule me. Jesus is Lord. He rules me body and soul. And someone right now is saying to themselves, Brett, yeah, I've heard this all before. And I would just say, then believe it and live like it's true. Because I can tell you that Brett Wiley doesn't always live like it's true. I can still find myself often living a powerless life, living like I'm still enslaved to sin, like I'm following a dead savior that's still in the tomb. Friends, his suffering on our behalf has freed us from the tyranny of our own desires. This means that sin doesn't get the final word on our lives. It means that we're not defined by our worst moments or worst decisions. It's Jesus who defines us. That's good news. So in that sense, anyone who is in Christ is finished with sin. 
But he's not only the power for our living, he's also the pattern for our living. Peter says that we are to arm ourselves with the same understanding as Jesus. What does this mean? I think Karen Jobes is helpful here. She says, repeatedly throughout his life, Jesus deliberately had to embrace his calling, even though it meant the suffering of being misunderstood, rejected, and finally tortured to death. His full humanity meant that although he was tempted to sin and thereby to renounce his calling, he constantly had to decide to obey God and suffer the consequences. Hebrews 2.18 says it this way, for he himself was suffered when he was tempted. So he's able to help those who are tempted. Listen, while, we ha- while Jesus is absolutely fully God, he's also fully man. He felt pain like we feel pain. He had emotions like we had emotions. He was tempted in every way in which we were and are, yet he did not sin. He always chose to live for God the Father's will and purposes not his own desires, knowing that that would lead to his suffering. So when we are tempted and when we suffer, we can know that Jesus understands what we are going for. He sympathizes with us. He's not a cold or distant savior. He walks with us through our trials and temptations. And because his death and resurrection empowers us to die to sin, we can arm ourselves with the same understanding that he had on earth and choose to be faithful to him even when it means our suffering. Because the person, think about it, the person who chooses to suffer over the ease of sin has finished with sin. So as we like to often say here at City Life, in Christ, through the power of Christ, we truly are free and have the ability to say no to sin and yes to Jesus constantly struggling with the same old desires and same old sins does not have to be our lot in life. Jesus came to offer us more than that. Next, let's notice that the victory of Christ also gifts us with new desires. Look at verses three and four with me. I'll read it. There's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. Even though the victory of Christ empowers us to die sin, as verse two says, we still have this time that we have to live in the flesh. This time that we have to live on the earth. As Christians, we live in the already but not yet reality of the gospel message. Christ has already, su- already defeated sin, death, and the devil through his once for all time suffering on the cross. He has already ended sin's reign over us, but we have not yet fully experienced the fullness of our salvation. And we still wrestle with indwelling sin and selfish desires in this present moment. We feel this, right? Like we believe this and then we still feel that we wrestle with these things. This already but not yet reality is why Peter even has to exhort his readers to to not live for their human desires, but live for God's will. Why? Because while their desires no longer rule over them, it's still a daily choice 
Listen, it's still a daily choice as to which desires we're going to allow to be central in our hearts. There's almost a hint of sarcasm in this verse. Peter essentially says, hey, you've had enough time doing all those things. There's already been enough time. You've had more than enough. And he ties this list of sinful behavior to the label Gentiles, which is interesting. Generally, when the term Gentile is used biblically, it's, it's simply referred to use, or used to refer to non-Jewish people. But here it's being used to refer to non-believers, those who don't follow Jesus and Messiah. So technically a Jewish person could be included in this label if they were a non-believer and choosing to live in the pattern of the world. Now, as you look over this list of sinful desires, there's an important thing we should note. Several of the actions in this list would have been very normal, a very normal aspect of Roman society. When it came to entertainment, religious festivals, civic holidays, even family celebrations, rampant drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, violence, crude conduct, and all-around lustful behavior would have been commonplace. Engaging in such behavior would have been expected and celebrated. Man, does that not hit home with our culture as well. And for these Christians, avoiding such behaviors combined, combined with the fact that they refused to burn incense to the emperor, they refused to engage in worshiping the emperor as a god, these things would have made these Christians stick out like a sore thumb. They would have been seen as very un-Roman. They would, have had, they would have been mocked, alienated, and persecuted as being a danger to society and blasphemous to the gods of Rome. As Job notes, because these behaviors were so commonplace in the culture, there would have been limitless opportunities for these Christians to choose Jesus and therefore suffer for their faithfulness to him. We see this in verse four, they are surprised that you don't join in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. Listen, there should be something different about the way we live. If our life is never surprising to those who don't believe in Jesus, we need to wrestle with that. We need to ask questions. It should be surprising, it should be compelling. The word for flood of wild living here literally means an outpouring or overflow. So, so picture with me for a moment, a person standing on a sidewalk, trying to decide which way to go. And then picture that a gigantic crowd is coming towards them. The easiest thing to do is, is just simply to get swept along in the crowd. It takes no effort, no will. You simply get swept along with everyone else. But if that person begins to walk in the opposite direction, it's going to be much more difficult. They will immediately face opposition. They'll be immediately bumping into other people because their life is on a different trajectory. Everyone will notice that they're going a different way. This was true of these first century Christians as well. The overwhelming swell of Roman society was going in one direct direction. And the easiest thing would have been just to get swept up in that wave and go with everyone else. But because of their allegiance to Jesus, these Christians began to walk in the opposite direction. I know everyone's going that way. I know it's easy. I know even it looks fun. But, but Jesus is this way and I'm going this way, no matter what may come. And when you're doing that, you can't help but stand out. 
While this was a compelling witness to some, others noticed that they weren't engaging in the things that Romans do, and so they slandered them for it. They hated them for it. So here's a question that we need to answer. What made these Roman Christians do it? How did they give up these old desires and old ways of living when so much was working against them? What made it worth it for them? And that question is not just important for them because it's important for us, right? Because it really gets at how people change, how we grow. And the answer really comes down to the human heart and how we're wired. Let me, let me give you the answer as simply and clearly as I possibly can. Their desire for Jesus and his will was greater than their former desires. Their love for Jesus had outgrown their love for the things they used to live for. And that's how it works, folks. It was Augustine who said the essence of sin is disordered love. And way back in chapter one, Peter said of his readers, though you have not seen him, you love him. These Christians loved Jesus. Listen, if you have an ongoing sin struggle that never seems to go away, that no matter how hard you try to stop it or cut it off, I'm telling you that you don't ultimately have a sin problem. You have a love problem. Now, that's not me just saying, hey, read your Bible more, love Jesus more, and you will stop struggling with lust. You'll stop struggling with anger. You'll stop struggling with greed. That kind of mechanical response is prone to leading to legalism and moralism. But what I am saying is that if you peel back the onion of your heart, you'll find that there's something deep down. There's something deeper than the lust deeper than the anger, deeper than the greed, something that you love and desire that is driving those things. And you can't get rid of something like that by simply stop doing it. I'm simply just gonna stop. I'm not gonna do that anymore. That's not how it works. Why? I know I quote it all the time, but because as Thomas Chalmers says, the heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You see, we don't need less desire to grow as Christians. We need more desire. We need such a big view of and love for Jesus that all the other things pale in comparison of him. Jesus, I have you, the fount of living water. Why would I ever turn back to these broken cisterns that don't hold water? that constantly leave me empty and lonely and searching more and more. In, in men's and women's Bible studies this semester, we're gonna study Ecclesiastes, which is a crazy book. Just preview, crazy. But the, the point of the book is that this teacher tried everything. He tried lust and greed and power and earthly wisdom and reputation and just working hard. He tried all of it. And his, his end thought is it was all like a vapor. It was like a mist. Every time I tried to grab it, it was gone. I had to reach for something else. That's why we can't just rid ourselves of our old desires. We need something substantive, something real that stops our chasing after the wind. We were created for God 
We were created to love and worship him. This is why we have affections and desires. Not all desires are bad. It's not a bad thing that we desire things. It's not a bad thing that we love things. That's God's design. But because of sin, our hearts will look to every other thing and every other person than God to provide what only he can. Let me close this point by saying this. There might be someone in here who heard the majority of things listed, because be honest, there's some crazy things listed in verse three, and said, I'm good. I'm not, and I don't do any of those things, I, I'm good. Brett's not talking to me now, he's definitely talking to some of these people. But that last one, lawless idolatry, that gets us all, right? No one gets a pass on this one. A pastor that I'm not gonna quote because uh, James Bladel makes me pay $5 if I quote him, says this, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. Think about that. I wonder what that thing is for you. The thing that most naturally consumes your attentions and your affections. We all have heart idols that we consistently fight. And often they're really good things because the easiest thing to make an idol are really good things. We can make idols of our jobs. We can make idols of school. We can make idols of our marriages. We can make idols of the very idea of marriage. We can make idols of our kids, of our favorite sports team, of our hobby, of ourselves, of literally anything in the universe. We're, we're really good at it. We've been making idols for a long time. And the thing that can rid your heart of these idols, the only thing that can rid your heart of these idols is what Augustine said was reordering our loves. It's finding a greater love and a greater desire that reorders all of our other affections, that reorders all of our other desires. But listen, I am not trying to sell you on some romanticized version of Christianity. This doesn't just happen overnight. For the vast majority of us, ridding our hearts of these former desires, what Peter calls human desires, will be a lifelong process and a daily decision. And we can't make this happen by simply trying harder and doing more. You know, some of us like the variables. Just give me the right variables, Brett, where if I put them in and I do all the formula, then out what I get is a, a big new desire and I, I subtract all those other ones. Show me the formula, Brett. It doesn't work like that. No, only the work of the Spirit to make Jesus bigger in your mind and heart can make this happen. Any other thing won't do. Any other thing can't do. It's the work of the Spirit. But we can place ourselves on ancient paths where Jesus has always tended to do this work in us. We can place ourselves under the Word and ask God to reveal Himself to us. We can sit in prayer and silence and solitude and practice the presence of God. We can place ourselves in a community that constantly points us back to the Gospel. And what Jesus tends to do when we do those things is show up and wreck our hearts for him. Think about the illustration of the person on the sidewalk for a minute with the overwhelming crowd walking at them. 
If that person's decision to go the other direction is just about their own efforts, their own will, their own trying harder, that's the only thing powering them, then they're not going to get very far before they say, okay, just take me, turn around and let the crowd sweep them away. But if the reason that person started walking the opposite direction against the crowd is because they saw someone or something on the other side of the crowd that they had to get to, they're going to keep walking no matter what may come, no matter what trials or suffering may come. I got to get to him. I'm going to keep walking. That's what happened to these Christians that Peter was writing to. They were going about their lives, living for themselves, carrying on in unrestrained behavior and lawless idolatry, and someone shared the gospel with them. And the Holy Spirit helped them see the risen Christ in such a way that he wrecked all their plans. He wrecked their lives for him. Friends, Jesus still does this. If you're sitting there and you're like, this sounds like a fairy tale, Jesus still does this. He does it all the time. This is what living in light of the victory of Christ does in us. It gifts us with new desires to live no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Finally, let's close by saying that the victory of Christ comforts us with a certain destiny. As I just said, living for God's will over our human desires doesn't just happen overnight. It's a lifelong process and a daily decision. And if we're honest, and we need to be honest, because we can't have a gospel culture in this church unless we're honest with one another. If we're honest, this gets tiring sometimes, does it not? We grow weary of denying ourselves. I've got to do it again. That's another opportunity. I've got to deny myself again. We grow weary. It would be so much easier just to go along with everyone else, just to go along with the crowd. And not only is it wearying, but it comes with pushback. Suffering and slander are not just possible. Jesus told us to expect it. This is why one of the core values of his kingdom is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you haven't yet, in light of all of this, at some point you'll ask the question, if, if you're a Christian long enough, at some point you'll ask the question, is Jesus really worth it? Is he really worth all of this? Guys, you're going to do this soon. Is he really worth all of this? Because giving in would be so simple. Peter's readers were certainly tempted by the pressures they faced of being faithful to Christ in a Roman society. Even more so as they began to experience persecution as, as, as this letter go, even going on from this letter, as persecution increased, as they eventually saw their brothers and sisters killed for their faith, at some point they probably asked the question, is he worth it? But Peter reminds them to have an eternal, not a temporary perspective. You hear me on that? Have an eternal, not a temporary perspective perspective. We humans are so simple. It's difficult for us to see past what is right in front of us. This is what I know. This is what I can get right now. This is what I can take right now. This is what I enjoy right now. This is what's pleasurable right now. And Peter's saying, get your eyes up. Live in light of eternity. He reminds his readers that in Christ, their destiny is certain and it is wonderful. There's so much more to life than what is right in front of us. 
That isn't all there is. He's saying things will not always be this way. Injustice and evil will not always triumph. Remember where Christ is. He's at the right hand of the Father, reigning with all authority. And there will be a day when he returns to make things right, to make all things new. A day when every single person who's ever lived, this is why verse five says the living and the dead will face the judgment of God. Judgment's an uncomfortable idea. But I would tell you, Christian, it's been affirmed by Christians throughout the church, throughout all history. If you look back to the early creeds, they're constantly reminding us that he will come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. They believed this day was coming. Peter believed this day was coming. He was reminding his readers that it was coming. For those who are in Christ, this day means comfort, joy, life eternal, unending bliss. But verse six has been controversial among scholars throughout church history because some have used it to justify that there was or is the possibility of coming to the gospel after death. The, 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 the broad testament of scripture says that's not a reality. And the, the reason that some have believed this to be the case is because your version might say, for this reason the gospel is preached to those who are dead who are dead, and they connect it to, to chapter three above us. But in this context, and with verse five, the phrase, who are now dead, is more faithful. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase from the message is helpful here. He writes, listen to the message. It was preached to those believers who are now dead, and yet even though they, just, they died, just as all people must, they will still get in on the life that God has given in Jesus. Peter was reminding his readers that not even death itself could separate them from the love of Christ. The promises of Christ and the warnings of Christ transcend life and death. So while in this life they might face judgments according to human standards, as verse 6 says, slander, suffering, and persecution, in the next life they would be judged according to God's standards enjoy life in the Spirit forever. We don't think often about the future. We don't think often about what's sometimes called end times or eschatology. Go ahead, Peter. We don't often think about that. But listen, friends, whatever you may be facing, however hard life is right now, no matter how overwhelming the temptation to go back to your old desires is, know that we will not always be in the already but not yet part of this story. The, the coming of Christ was always a hopeful thing for Christians throughout church history. It was, things they, it was something they longed to see. And someday we'll get there. But for now, with, with Paul in faith, we say, for I consider the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glories that is going to be revealed to us. Do we believe that? No matter what we face in this life, the glory to be revealed in the next is going to be beyond comparison. Life with Jesus. Now we started with the Chronicles of Narnia, so let's close with it as well. In the last battle, the last book of Lewis's Chronicles, 
He gives an incredible description of what all those who are in Christ will look, have to look forward to. He says this, and as he spoke, Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after they were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Will the thing that you are giving your love to, will the thing that you're trusting and hoping in right now, will it matter in 10,000 years? Will it matter in 10,000 years? Because our 70, 80 years on this life, it's a blip in light of eternity. I know faithfulness to Jesus in this life can be hard. I know that at times it can be hard to see whether or not it's worth continuing to deny your old desires, whether it's worth the potential suffering that you will face in this life, whether it's ultimately worth giving our whole lives and our complete devotion to Jesus. But friends, he is. He's the only place you can find what you're ultimately looking for. He's the only one who can satisfy your deepest longings and desires. And friends, he's writing a story for you and for his church in which every chapter is better than the one before. This life is just the cover and title page. So through the victory of Christ, he really does empower us to die to sin. He really can give us new desires. And he really does secure for us a certain destiny. The only way to face life in a sin-filled, unjust world is to live in light of the victory of Christ. May we believe it and live in light of it this week. Let's pray.